You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Anyways, it's good to be here with you again. Merry Christmas, everyone. We're starting early this year and celebrating the birth of Christ we're excited for that, excited to uh, share and, uh, and uh, believe in the birth, the nativity of Jesus Christ. And so as you're getting those papers, our ushers are also going to hand out some Bibles. So if you need a Bible, please slide your hand up. We want God's holy, inspired word in your hands. You need it. You need it every day. You need it today. Um, it is his word spoken to you, and it tells you the truth about your need of Jesus Christ. And so go ahead, if you want one of those, just slide your hand up. So we're going to start this morning. you got a paper there, and, and I know it looks a little bit confusing. But uh, we're going to start with this little picture here of these two guys. And so the first quiz for you this morning is, can you identify who these guys are? Can you identify who they are? Anybody? Nobody? It's not your neighbor? No? All right, well... I know that they have some pretty killer hair and uh, love, the, love the suits, right? And really not our, not our era, right? Um, but who are these guys and why are they significant uh, in our celebration of Christmas this year? Actually, we're going to see that we're going to be camping out uh, with their work over the next three Sundays. And uh, you're still looking a little bit puzzled about who these guys are, okay? Well... First, let's just talk about their style. I can't wait for style. You know, they say style is always a revolving door, right? It's always returning. So I can't wait until our young guys are putting on white wigs and wearing pirate costumes again. It's going to be awesome. Um, Anyways, I'll I'll give you a hint about who these guys are. And it has to do with our our sermon series over the next three Sundays. The, The sermon series title is Messiah. Messiah. Does that give you any hint? Maybe that'll help you guess who one of these guys are, right? All right, if you look at your paper, you'll see uh, that uh, the guy on the left is George Friedrich Handel. Anybody hear of him before? Yeah, kind of, you hear about him at Christmas time, right? Uh, most people know his music. Uh, they, would, they would recognize Handel's Messiah. Uh, most notably the, would be the, 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 the Hallelujah Chorus, right? You see that all over the place. You hear that. You know, hallelujah, hallelujah, he shall reign forever and ever. Um, anybody ever been to a, one of those concerts? Yeah. I've never been. I would love to actually go. I've been listening to uh, this orchestral piece all week, listening to it over and over again. I think Spencer can remember me listening to this oratorio all week. Um, but Messiah, Handel's Messiah, is an absolutely magnificent piece of musical history. It's amazing. And these smart-dressed gentlemen are the guys who put it together. They composed this in the early 1700s in England. Uh, Handel was widely known for operas, anthems, and oratorios, uh, such as water music. Anybody know that? Water music. Fireworks, uh, the music for the royal fireworks and others. Uh, But Messiah is Handel's most famous piece. This guy was the real thing. He, he was the absolute genius of his day when it came uh, to music. 
In fact, he composed this whole piece, Messiah, is 259 pages of orchestral music, and he composed that in 24 days. In fact, when he wrote Messiah, some people even regarded him as being divinely inspired. Um, as he finished composing the Hallelujah Chorus, he was so emotionally entranced uh, by the words of the angels that, that he's writing or that he's writing music to in Revelation uh, that he said this. He said, I did think, I did see heaven open before me and the great God himself. He was so entranced by the, the word of God, the power of the word of God and the worship of God by his angels. Now, what about the other guy, the guy on the right? We have his picture still up there. The guy with also great hair. Uh, well, this guy, he was really the man in the shadows. He was really the kind of the unsung hero of Handel's Messiah. He went by the name Charles Jennings. And he was a, a libretist, which is somebody who would write lyrics for operas and oratorios. Uh, he was the guy that put the lyrics all together for Handel's Messiah. Now, has anybody ever looked at the lyrics to Handel's Messiah? You got a copy in front of you. That's just the first, the first movement. You have a copy of the lyrics. So, what do you notice about that? It's all scripture. The whole piece is all scripture. And it's all from the very word of God. If you're looking at yours, that would have been from the King James Version at that time. And also from uh, the, the common book of prayer would have had some of the Psalms uh, interpreted there as well. But it's absolutely incredible. When you listen to this, it is all scripture. And it is written at a time of hostility. I know sometimes we look back and we think, well, everybody was Christians back then. Not at this time. There was great hostility towards the church. This was uh, soon after the age of enlightenment, the age of reason in the 16th and 17th centuries. It was an age of deism, where people were questioning the reality of God. They were questioning the church. They were questioning the authority of his word. But right in the middle of this age, we see this Christian man, Charles Jennings. And he wants the world to know the truth. He wants them to know the gospel. He wants them to come to know Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so he sets out by, by putting together these scriptural lyrics, organizing them so he can tell the gospel's story. And then he commissions Handel to put it to music. And he said this. He said, I hope Handel will lay out his whole genius and skill upon it that the composition may excel his former compositions. As the subject excels every other subject, the subject is Messiah. He wants Handel to make this his greatest piece. And so as we think about Christmas, we think about our traditions, we have to remember it's all about the Messiah. And so as we worship the next three Sundays, we're actually going to use Handel's Messiah to guide us through the next three Sundays and it's going to help us look at God's word and the gospel that is being preached. As you look at Handel's Messiah, you're going to see that there's three major movements. The first movement is today, the promised nativity. Next week, it's going to be present passion. And the third Sunday is going to be future glory of Jesus Christ. And so today, we're starting with the promised nativity. And we're going to be starting in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 5. So let's read that together. Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 5. Comfort, 
Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we get to look at your word again today. We thank you that your word is no longer veiled in a foreign language but that you have caused men to stand up, to stand up and to write it in the everyday language, that we have it in English, that people died so that we could have your word in our hands, in our language. Lord, thank you for people in history like Handel and Charles Jennings who, who worked together to, to highlight your gospel. And we thank you that today we get to glean from them and as they point us to scripture so that we can come to know you. Lord, we thank you today that we get to learn about the promised nativity, that this was no accident, that your plan from the very beginning was to save mankind through your Son. And so do that work in us today. Change us, transform us further into your image. Help us to receive this. Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit is active in our lives, illuminating your scripture to us, teaching us, reminding us, convicting us of sin so that we could follow you and to follow you in holiness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Handel. Who thought they were going to be learning about, a little bit about that today? No. All right. So that's Charles Jennings, the, the libertist, the guy who put these lyrics together for Handel. He wanted the truth, like I said, of the Messiah to be believed. He was looking upon his culture and he was upset at how they were turning away from the Lord and, and turning away from the church, turning away from the truth. And so he starts his lyrics of Handel's Messiah in Isaiah. Isaiah, the prophet. So as God spoke through his prophet Isaiah, he spoke a promise of salvation. That he had a plan to save his people. And that's our first point this morning, is that God has promised the way of salvation. This is no accident. He has promised it. He has promised this in eternity past. And so as we look at Isaiah 40, we see that God is speaking, and he's speaking prophetically to his people, to the people of Judah, who are about to be exiled because of their sin. They were about to be taken away from Jerusalem, and they were going to be taken captive into Babylon to be serving a pagan king. And as they were going and looking forward to this, they were going to be a heartbroken people. They were going to lose everything that they had. And Isaiah, the prophet, is prophesying towards that time, seeing this, and seeing that the Lord would speak tenderly to his people amidst their anguish. The Lord says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. He reassures them that, that although they're far from Jerusalem when they're in captivity, 
They are far from their home. They are far from the temple, far from God's indwelling presence, that they are still his people. And that he has a plan to bring them back, a plan to save them, that they'll no longer be at war with him, no longer be separated with him, that their iniquities, as it says there, will be pardoned, forgiven. And so if you know the history uh, here, you know that they will be captured and they will be held captive, but God saves them. God is faithful to save them. We see this all throughout Israel's history. Exodus, being saved back to his presence. And so God was faithful to save them from their exile. They were brought back to Jerusalem, and then they began to rebuild the temple again. But then God continues to speak through Isaiah, to speak greater than this return in Babylon. God begins to reveal more of his promise to save his people. He unveils more of his plan. That his people need more than saving from Babylon. They need to be saved from their sin. They need to be saved by their Savior, this long-awaited, promised Messiah. That's where we start in in verse 3 there. A voice cries in the wilderness. Where have we heard that before? We've been reading or we've been studying the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, right? Who is the one who is the voice crying in the wilderness? John the Baptist, that's right. He was the forerunner of Christ. He was pointing to the greater one, right? He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, right? Preaching that we need to turn from our sin and turn to the Lord. He was preparing the way of the Lord, He wasn't the Messiah. He was pointing to one who was coming. And he was preparing the way of the Lord. That's the Lord's way, his plan. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. These days of perpetual exile and separation in the Israelites are going to one day be forever over. And that's found in Jesus Christ when he came. In verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Anybody ever look at a topographical map of British Columbia? It's really wrinkly, isn't it? It's, really, it's not flat at all. You look, it's covered with mountains. Now, compare that to a topographical map of Saskatchewan, right? It's pretty flat right? It's pretty flat. No wrinkles there. So there's a huge difference when you see the two. And so I want you to just imagine that you're standing in the middle of the Rocky Mountains, okay, somewhere, maybe maybe over in uh, Quinnell, you're looking over this way, and there's mountains all around you. Now the sun begins to come up. The day begins to start. And you see that, okay, it's starting to lighten up. You know, we're starting to have some light but you can't see the sun. You don't know where the sun is because the sun is behind a mountain. You can't pinpoint where the sun is. Now picture yourself standing in Saskatchewan looking east. When the sun comes up, you know exactly where the sun is. And that's what's going on here. 
God is further revealing his plan. It's like looking across the plains of Saskatchewan, and now we can see, we can pinpoint the sun more clearly. It's no longer veiled behind a mountain. We can see clear. And that's what's going on here in God's word. He's showing us more of his plan. And so as we look at John the Baptist, as he's preaching, he's preparing the way for the coming Messiah. His plan of redemption is becoming more and more clear. It's no longer hidden. It's no longer veiled. His way is straight. His way is clear. It's being revealed. So what's about to be revealed? It says, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. It means God himself is revealing himself. The glory of the Lord is being revealed. All flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what we have here is prophecy, not only for the Jews, but for the rest of the world. It says all flesh shall see it together. It cannot be missed. Redemption is for all of mankind, and it is coming. And so as Charles Jennings is putting the lyrics together from Scripture in Handel's Messiah, we're seeing he starts with the prophecy of redemption. Prophecy of redemption. And he's doing this in the face of a watching world. He wanted them to know that God had the plan. God was the plan and that he promised the way of salvation. And this is just one example of prophecy that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As you look at God's word and you, you see the rituals, you see the sacrifices, you see the prophecies, you see the illusions, you see over 400 examples of prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so for the Christian, this reminds us of God's overwhelming grace to save us from the very beginning. His plan is perfect from the very beginning. But for the skeptic, for those who don't believe, they have to look at this overwhelming evidence. You have to look at that evidence of, of these prophecies being fulfilled. And you either have to say, that's not true, I reject it. But for the skeptic, for the unbeliever, you have to know that God has promised a way. He has. He's promised the way of salvation. And then you would ask, well, salvation from what? Salvation from what? And that leads us to our second point. Second point of the promised nativity. The reason that you needed a way is because you are hopelessly helpless on your own. You are hopelessly helpless on your own. If you want to turn over to Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. We're following the scripture here in Messiah. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. It's the last book in the Old Testament. So just go to the middle and go to the left. Malachi. I had a professor in, uh, in school, and uh, he would always say, it's the book of Malachi, the last Italian prophet. <laughs> he was an Italian. Malachi 3. Verses 1 to 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 
So again, we see the Lord here speaking again to his people through a prophet. This is the way he communicated to his people. He had the written word of God, but he also had his prophets who especially indwelt with his spirit to speak the word of God to his people. Said the Lord of hosts. And so Malachi was a prophet among the people in the middle of the Babylonian exile. And his prophecy here actually speaks of two messengers. A messenger that prepares the way. That is the same as Isaiah's prophecy of Christ's forerunner, John the Baptist. But here we also see a messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. So two messengers. So at this time, the Israelites were already beginning to return to Jerusalem, and they were rebuilding the second temple. But there was still Israelites uh, in Babylon. But they were rebuilding the second temple. And this second temple paled in comparison to the first. The Lord's glory didn't come to this temple in the same way as the first temple. And people revealed that they were upset about that. And so as they were awaiting their Messiah, they believed that he was going to bless them. The second temple was just, it just wasn't the glory that it once was. But in the middle of this, what God was revealing is that this messenger of the covenant also has another side to him. So the messenger of the covenant, they're looking forward to Jesus, that this would be the, the, the blessing of the Messiah. But what we're going to see here is that uh, this Messiah has another side to him. Verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So God is revealing, of course, that good news is coming in the Lord, in the Messiah. But also we see terrifying news. News of holy justice. News of holy character. Malachi is basically saying to his people, this one that you claim to love may not actually be coming to bless some of you. He may be coming back to judge some of you, to refine some of you. The text says that he is like a refiner's fire in like fuller's soap. Now, let's start with the soap. This, this soap is not your bar of zest. This is not Irish spring we're talking about here. This is fuller's soap. This wasn't used on your body. It was a harsh soap. It was, it was made of lye and it was used to, to clean and to purify clothing or material. And as people would use it, uh, they would take their clothes, put it on rocks, use the soap, and they would beat the clothes with sticks in order to get it clean, in order to purify them, in order to get them white. So similarly, we, we see that speaking of Jesus Christ as the judge and also as the refiner, that his cleansing sometimes hurts there is sacrifice involved in there as well. But then we see this refiner's fire, this, which will help us to paint the picture a little bit better. Speaking of purifying his people, uh, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, 
and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. So if you've ever witnessed the refining of gold, anybody see gold refined or silver refined, anything like that? Nobody here watches Gold Rush like me? Um, You have to take gold, you have to put it in a crucible, you need to heat it up to about 1950 degrees Fahrenheit. And as it reaches that heat, uh, the top begins to have the impurities would rise to the top. It's called the dross. And so these impurities will, will rise up to the top. And as this happens, the refiner begins to, to take that stuff off the top. And the refiner, and I love this, the refiner knows that the, go- that the gold is finally refined, that it is pure when he can see his own reflection in the gold. That's so cool. It speaks of Jesus Christ as he refines us. He's conforming us into his image. And as he refines us like gold, he's removing the sin, removing the impurities, and he's putting his reflection in us, and he knows that we are being refined, and we are more like him when he can see himself in us. So the refiner knows this. And then it says that they will bring offerings in the righteousness of to the Lord. So that's the sons of Levi. He is starting with those who claim to be his priests, those who claim to be the holy ones. He is bringing his refiners, fire, his fullers. So he's coming back as a judge. He's coming back as a judge. And so this messenger of the covenant who was prophesied, this coming Messiah, he will be both redeeming Savior, but also a holy, refining judge. One who will separate the wheat from the chaff. One who will separate the sheep from the goats. One who looks past your outward appearance. One who looks past what you even say, and he looks on the heart. He knows what you really believe. So it's easy for us to look at the promised Messiah and just have warm, fuzzy thoughts, right? This this season of Christmas, Christ is a baby, warm, fuzzy thoughts. And and that's awesome. We, We do believe that. But we have to be careful that we have a full understanding about who Jesus is. We need to understand all of him. That yes, Jesus loves me, but that he's also a refiner's fire. That he's also coming back as a judge. And that even today, he is a purifying grace in our lives, removing the dross, removing the sin, and putting his reflection in us. But this question... Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? So we need to ask ourselves, will I endure? Will I stand in his coming? And so we ask ourselves, who are we trusting in? Is it myself? Is it my good deeds? Is it my religious practices? Am I trusting in those things? Or am I trusting in the refiner's fire himself, the Messiah himself? You know, we all have friends and family, members who love the idea of a Savior. But not so much when it comes to having a Lord. One who demands something from you. One who brings commands into your life for you to follow him in holiness, right? Some people love the idea of a Savior, but they reject the Lordship of God. But he is a judge, and he is one who purifies. And apart from his purifying grace, you are hopelessly helpless on your own. 
You will not stand. You will not endure. And so this is the bad news. And I love that this is in Handel's Messiah, starting with a promise of a coming Savior, but showing us the bad news. We need the bad news, right? I love what R.C. Sproul says about this. He says, if all of you, if all you preach is the good news and you never preach the bad news, the good news becomes no news. So friends, we are hopelessly helpless on our own. Ever since the Garden of Eden, mankind has been going his own way, balling up his fist and walking towards destruction. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. There is a judge and there is a judgment and there is an eternal fire prepared for man. Romans 2.5 tells us that it's because of our hard and impenitent hearts. And what we're doing when we walk in, in unrepentant life, we are storing up wrath against ourselves. It's because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so on our own, in our sin, apart from Christ, you will not stand. You will not endure apart from Jesus Christ and his salvation in your life. And so we're faced with the great dilemma, right? So if I can't stand on my own, if I can't endure the day of coming, what do I need to do? What do I need to believe? What do I need to know? Handel's Messiah takes us there next. In part three, we, we move from the necessary bad news to the miraculous good news. He miraculously sent himself for you. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Here we see God showing his people through the prophet Isaiah again that their only hope of salvation must come through a savior. It must come through a man. Emmanuel. Now that, that name Emmanuel is, is less of a name and more of a definition. The name Emmanuel means God with us. It's a title. It's a declaration of who he is and how he presents himself to us. And so, as we know that we are hopelessly helpless on our own and that in light of the holiness of God, we have no hope to stand we see here an eternal plan being revealed more. That God has to send himself. That God has to be with us. He's both man. He's, he's God. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. And the only way that he could be with us is purely a miraculous event. And so he had to give us a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Behold means to look, be watching. Look for a virgin. Look for a young, chaste maiden, a woman who has not had sexual relations with a man, a woman who has never bore a child. 
And I'm going to show you a miracle. And the miracle is that she would be an earthly mother, a virgin who has never had sexual relations with a man. And she is going to give birth to the eternal Savior. You know, when we look at the Old Testament, we see God doing miracles all the time. We see things, uh, miracles with regard to birth, right? Uh, we just think of Abraham and Sarah. Think of Isaac and Rebekah. God made barren wombs fruitful. But throughout the rest of Scripture, you never see a virgin birth. This is the only one. And this is a sign that the people are to be watching for, to be ready for, to be waiting for. And this was prophetic. And then hundreds of years later, after hundreds of years of silence from God when he wasn't speaking to his people at the perfect time, at the perfect place, a virgin conceives she miraculously conceives. So it was a sign to them. I'm showing you, this is a clear sign that this is who your Savior is going to be. And then if you turn over to Matthew chapter 1, first book of the New Testament, turn there with Handel's Messiah to that book, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, so she was engaged to Joseph, before they came together, that's before they had sexual relations, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. She was with child from God himself. The Holy Spirit overshadowed her, miraculously conceived the baby, put the baby in her. And her husband Joseph, being a man, a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. So when you were betrothed, engaged at that time, it was more serious than perhaps what we would have today with an engagement. You were considered married, but you were not, you have not cons uh, consummated that marriage yet in sexual relations. And so he was going to divorce her quietly. He was, he was suspicious of her virginity. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this took place 2,000 years ago. This really took place. This isn't made up. This isn't a story. This really took place. It's the truth. Friends, we couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't do enough to bring appeasement to our God. We needed him to come. We desperately needed him to come. 
And he miraculously came, and his eternal plan was being fulfilled. And it is here, and it is clear. This young virgin woman is found to be with a child. Not naturally, supernaturally. The Holy Spirit, God himself, produced this child. A baby that would save the world from their sin. A baby who is 100% man and 100% God. And he is given the name Jesus. Jesus, built off of Yeshua. God saves. So this has only happened once. This has only ever happened once. And it's a significant sign for us still today. For us to look back and to look on the virgin birth. This is an essential truth of Christianity. This is not something that we can reject. This is truth. Because in it, we find that God is with us. He has finally come. The miraculous birth means everything to us. It is so essential. It's so vital for understanding as believers. Because we needed a miracle. We needed a miracle to save us from the depravity of who we were. But Jesus has come. God with us has come. And he has come for you. That's why we stand, that's why we sing, that's why we pray, that's why we live, that's why we exist as a church, that's why we go and share this good news. It's amazing. Which leads us to our next point. This is the greatest news you'll ever hear. This is the greatest news you'll ever hear. Luke 2, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 2, 8 to 14, it recounts the birth Again, so Handel's Messiah moves next to Luke chapter 2, and we see Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you, this born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among these with whom he is pleased. When it comes to news, there is no greater news than that. Just think of these lowly shepherds, some of the lowliest people, tending to their sheep, minding their own business, in the middle of the night, just trying to survive. And wham, this angel shows up in blinding glory, bright, shining glory all around them to tell them the good news. This angel did not go to the temple. He did not go to the priests. 
He went to the lowly. He came down all the way to the lowliest of mankind. And they were filled with great fear. This is the proper response. If you were ever to be in the presence of an angel, great fear. And then the angel speaks. He says, do not be afraid. He sees that they are afraid. He knows they are afraid. Don't be afraid. I don't have bad news. I have good news. I bring you good tidings, good news. This, this word here, good news, is the same word for the gospel, evangelion. And it's a gospel of great joy. It's not fear. It is great joy. For unto, for unto you, the lowly, the despised, unto you, that's us, we who are weak, we who are needy, he says, born this day, born that day 2,000 years ago, that day finally came in the city of David, again, filling more prophecy, Micah 2, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then the angel calls them to go and to find him. He says, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Again, showing us that this Christ is a humble Christ. This Messiah is a humble Messiah, appearing to lowly shepherds. And next we see him lying in a feeding trough. The humility of our Savior. The Lord of the universe Lying in a feeding trough. Helplessly lying in a feeding trough. This is the one that all creation has been longing for. This is the, the one that, that the Jews and all humanity have been waiting for. And this is news that the whole angelic host has been waiting for. Things they long to look for. That Jesus would come and he would finally be with his people, God with his people, to love his people, to save his people. And what's their natural response? What's the angel's response? They give him glory. Glory that is due only the name of God. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest! And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace. Peace. There is no greater news. There is no greater news than what the angels proclaimed. It's the greatest news we ever heard, the world would ever hear, and what the angels ever heard. And the proper response to that good news, that gospel, is worship. News of great joy. When you think of the gospel, do you have great joy? When you get in the car and you come to church together with God's people, are you full of great joy? There is no greater news. Is it the greatest news to you? Is it the news that, that you can't help but sharing, that you're just bursting to share with the world?
Then we ask ourselves, why do we keep that to ourselves? If it's the greatest news, why are we keeping it to ourselves? If it's truly great news, why do we treat it like it's a secret? Why are we ashamed of it? Why are we hiding it? God's word is so abundantly clear that this is the greatest news. That Jesus Christ, the Savior, that his promised nativity, that his birth has come. That it's the the treasure that we have been given. The treasure that we need to share. It's the eternal treasure and we need to share it abundantly sowing that seed abundantly, praying for the Lord to do his harvest. Just think about the conversations you had in this last week, conversations with unbelievers or or even just your friends. What are you talking about with them? What are you sharing with them? Are you sharing how funny that certain series is? Television show. Are you sharing with people how great that new song is? How great your favorite hockey team is? Or your soccer team? Are you sharing how great your kids are at something? Or how great your last vacation was? Whatever it may be. What about this greatest news that could ever be known? The treasure that you have been given. That the Messiah has come. Why isn't that the first thing rolling off our lips? Why aren't we bursting with joy to share that with the world? This is our job, right? This is our number one job. Our privilege as Christians is to have this treasure and to share it. I know sometimes life gets in the way, but we need to press through that, share this with the world. And so you're probably hearing at our church over and over again the push for the mission. And that will never end at this church. We're not here for ourselves. We're here for the glory of the Lord. And he gets more glory as we share the gospel with the world. People are saved and they start worshiping him. That's what it's all about. We're not here for good music. We're not here for good programs, good fellowship. Those are all awesome. We love those things. But we have to make sure that that we're not merely being consumers as Christians. We are goers. We are producers. And so we need to join the angels as they proclaim this message. If we're not doing that, we're not doing our jobs. Souls are not getting saved. People are not going to find that true peace that we're talking about. And so as we see these angels proclaiming, and we see the beauty and the joy of the gospel, let that motivate you again. Let that drive you to go Remember, when you think about the angels, you see them proclaiming this good news. Remember this, angels can't save anybody. Angels don't proclaim the gospel today. That is a job that's been left for us to do. We need to be the ones that go. How will they hear without a preacher? And that's you. And so this is for you. Take that, run with it. This is the greatest news that we will ever hear. Let's share that as if it is the greatest news we'll ever hear. This is the news that uh, the the libertist here, um, Charles Jennings, he wanted to share this with the world. He He was witnessing 
to a world that was far from God, a world that needed saving, a world that was rejecting God's word. They were holding fast to human reason. They were rejecting the truth of the gospel. And one thing you want to learn about him is that the reason that he wrote the lyrics to the Messiah was because an experience in his life. He experienced tragedy in his life. Tragedy of unbelief. You see, he had a younger brother. And his younger brother began to believe the teachings of the Enlightenment, began to hold fast to human reason. He began to reject the knowledge of God, reject the word of God, and he was being heavily influenced by secularists. He began to believe that God was far off. God was not involved intimately in his life anymore. He began to think that there was no reason to even live anymore, and his brother took his life. He took his life because there was no more reason to live, and this devastated Charles. But then it also motivated him to share the greatest news he could ever share. And he wrote this. He put the lyrics to Handel's Messiah to share the gospel with the world. It wasn't just to have good music to listen to. It was a message. And it was going to go far and wide. He wanted to share the news of the gospel of great joy. He got it. And he went to great lengths to share it. Because the dying world needs a savior. It needs a savior. And then as we see this first movement closing, we see him go to some final scriptures. And he goes to Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. You can turn there. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. The very words of Christ. Starting in verse 28. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What a way to end that first movement. So friends, in in Jesus Christ, in his gospel, he calls you to stop striving and start believing. Stop striving and start believing. Is your soul wrestling today? Are you at war with God today? Are, Are you trying to earn your salvation through good works? By being a good person? Are you trying to reach heaven on your own efforts? I mean, this is the whole message of the gospel to the Jewish people in the book of Matthew. They're believing in a religious system that somehow they can earn their way to God. We see that today. Every other religion besides biblical Christianity is teaching you that righteousness comes through your own efforts. But the Bible teaches otherwise. You cannot please God on your own. You cannot do enough on your own. That's why Jesus had to come. He knew that we couldn't do it on our own. He had to come and live that perfect, sinless life for us. 
and be the greatest sacrifice for all mankind. The good news is that we'll never be good enough. Only one person was good enough. Only one person lived without sin, and it was Jesus Christ. It was Emmanuel. It was God with us. And this is the greatest and glorious news that we could share. So our answer here is not to turn to the world, not to turn to ourselves, but to turn to God. He says, come to me. Don't run away like from the beginning in the garden, balling up your fist and going your own way. Come to me. He's coming to you. Remember in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, who's looking for who? God is looking for them. Adam, where are you? God is looking for you. He calls you to come to him. Turn from your sin. Trust in him. Don't turn to yourself. Don't turn to a religious system. Don't turn to your own efforts. Come to the one whose burden is light, whose yoke is easy, who's, who, who's the person that you will find eternal rest for your souls. What great news. It's not come to me and keep on working hard for your righteousness. It's come to me and find rest, find peace, find it in me. I have earned it for you. That's the gospel. And I will give you my righteousness. This is the good news. Everlasting peace can only be found in Jesus Christ. Everlasting peace can only be found in a manger 2,000 years ago. Everlasting peace can only be found in one who was nailed to a cross, who rose from the grave, and who was ascended into a heaven, and who is coming back soon. Remember, he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. Will we stand? Will we be able to stand? Or are we trusting in him, the one whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light? And so as we look at this whole first movement of Handel's Messiah, you see a message. And as you look at it all together, the gospel is on display. The first one, God has promised the only way of salvation. You are hopelessly helpless on your own. He miraculously sent himself for you. This is the greatest news you'll ever hear. Stop striving and start believing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the glory of your truth. We thank you that in your word, as, as we've walked through prophecy and we've walked through fulfillment, that all of it is true. We thank you that you did not leave us on our own. You did not leave us to ourselves. You did not leave us in our sin, but you came. And you came in humble glory. Lord, we thank you that your plan, your promised nativity was planned before the foundation of the world. You knew that we would walk away from you, and yet you came for us. What grace, Lord. We worship you. We exalt the name of Christ this morning in his nativity as we remember Christ as a baby. What humility. And we thank you that your gospel has been on display through your word. We pray as we continue to walk through your word over this Christmas season that our eyes would be on you 
that yes, our traditions, yes, our celebrations, they're all fun. It's all a great, busy, fun time. But help us to cast our eyes upon our Savior, the one who is worthy of all of our praise. Help us now. Help us now in this last song to sing from the heart, to sing in spirit and truth, to remember what you've promised. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.